Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. In our recent Unearthed, we talked about the discovery of a previously unknown chapter of the blue cover version of Murasaki Shikibu's Genji Monogatari, or The Tale of Genji. Murasaki Shikibu has been on my list basically since Holly and I joined the show in 2013, but she also has a lot in common with Sei Shonagon, who we covered in our first year on the show and whose episode we republished as a Saturday classic in 2017. We cover people who have similar backgrounds and stories all the time, but in terms of Sei Shonagon and Murasaki Shikibu, there is just a lot of overlap. Both women were ladies-in-waiting in the court of Japanese Emperor Ichijo at the same time, but they served in different households. Sei Shonagon served Empress Teishi, and Murasaki Shikibu served Empress Shoshi. These two empresses were rivals, although a lot of that rivalry was sort of by extension through their fathers. Both of these women also wrote, with their work being viewed as both literature and as a historical document about life in the court of Heian, Japan. At the same time, though, these two women's written work isn't really all that similar. And at this point, it seems like there is plenty of time that has passed between that Sei Shonagon episode and its Saturday classic uh, and now. There's also a lot of context about Heian Japan that we didn't get into as much in that earlier episode. So that discovery that I came across for our unearthed episodes finally moved Murasaki up to the top of the list, and we are finally getting to her today. Murasaki Shikibu, sometimes known in English as Lady Murasaki, lived during Japan's Heian period, which spanned from 794 to 1185. And this period is named for the Japanese capital of Heian-kyo, which was the predecessor to today's Kyoto. The capital moved from Nara to Heian-kyo in 794. Japan's government and culture during this period were heavily influenced by and patterned after Tang Dynasty China, with influences from Buddhism as well. Japan started distancing itself from China in the late 19th century as the Tang Dynasty declined, although those earlier influences continued to be a big part of the culture. They kind of started growing into their own thing. Heian Japan was particularly known for its imperial court culture, which had a focus on elegance, beauty, and refinement, and spawned a whole renaissance in literature and art. During this period, the Fujiwara family really dominated the Japanese imperial government and society in general. Although the emperor was considered to be both above and outside of Japan's social and political hierarchy, the Fujiwara family had extensive connections to the imperial family and was consequently able to exert a huge amount of influence. Polygamy was common in Han Japan, and for much of Japanese history, emperors typically had multiple wives who were arranged into a hierarchy that included the empress, followed by consorts, followed by intimates. Powerful families arranged marriages between their daughters and the emperor or his heir apparent, and then those daughters' place in this whole hierarchy depended on their family's position in the greater social hierarchy— Although there were surely emperors who really appreciated that this system gave them access to so many women, this was also really about giving Japan's most prominent and powerful families access to the emperor. 
The Fujiwara family was Japan's most powerful and high-ranking family during most of the Heian period. So when the family's highest-ranking members arranged marriages between their daughters and the emperor or his heir, those daughters usually became empresses or high-ranking consorts. The daughter's sons were in line to become emperors, and if they came to the throne when they were too young to rule, their Fujiwara grandfather became regent. That rivalry between Empresses Teishi and Shoshi that we mentioned earlier, their fathers were brothers, and each of them was trying to get his daughter and her children into that highest-ranking position possible. In, in case it's not really clear from the sheer number of times we have just said hierarchy and rank, the Heian court was incredibly focused on rank and where you were in the rank and precedence and order really extremely Murasaki Shikibu was also part of the Fujiwara family, but from a much less prominent and influential branch of it. Her father was Fujiwara no Tametoki. He was educated and well-regarded as a poet and a scholar, but he was not nearly high enough in the family hierarchy for his daughters to get married into the imperial family. During his career, he was the governor of three provinces, and at one point he was tutor to the crown prince. Tamatoki's famous daughter was born sometime between 973 and 978. You'll see both of those years pretty often, as well as years in between, depending on what source you're looking at. In addition to not knowing her birth year for sure, we also don't know what name she was given. Girls' names were not generally recorded in Heian, Japan, so for the most part, we only know their names if they eventually became an empress or mother to an emperor. When it comes to the moniker Murasaki Shikibu, Murasaki was the name of one of the characters in the tale of Genji. She was one of Genji's wives, the one who's often described as being the love of his life. Murasaki also means purple or lavender, and the name Fujiwara means wisteria arbor. So there's some speculation that this nickname was also kind of a nod to her family name as well. Shikibu is a reference to Fujiwara no Tametoki's offices, one of the offices that he held. It was the Bureau of Ceremonial. In addition to not knowing her name, we don't know a whole lot about Murasaki's life. She does seem to have been regarded as gifted from a very early age. There are stories that she was such a talented poet that her father said that he wished she had been born a boy. He also seems to have taught her to speak Chinese and write Chinese calligraphy. Chinese was the official language of the imperial court, with everything from official documents to literature being written in Chinese. But Chinese was also considered to be a language for men. Women were not generally taught to read or speak it. Murasaki herself said that she learned Chinese by listening at the door while her father taught her brother, but that would not have explained her ability to write in calligraphy. She also taught Chinese to the empress, probably in secret, or at least as discreetly as possible, because there was really no privacy at court. Fujiwara no Tamatoki was given the governorship of the province of Echizen in 996, and Murasaki traveled with him to help him establish and run his household. But she was not particularly happy there and only stayed for about a year before returning to Kyoto. In 998 or 999, she married Fujiwara no Nobutaka, Although we don't know Murasaki's age for sure, this does seem to have been a relatively late marriage, and Nobutaka was a distant cousin roughly twice her age who already had other wives and children. 
Murasaki and Nobutaka had a daughter in 999 whose name was Katako or Kenshi. The characters used to write it can be read either way. And this daughter was later known as Daini no Somni, and she became a highly regarded poet in her own right. Fujiwara no Nobutaka died in the year 1001. And it was probably at some point afterward that Murasaki started writing the tale of Genji. It might have been this work that led her to be called to serve in the Empress's court. That invitation came in the year 1006. And the tale of Genji as we know it today seems to existed by about 1007 or 1008. In addition to writing the tale of Genji, Murasaki Shikibu wrote a diary during some of her time at court. Sometimes this diary is compared to, say, Shonagon's pillow book, but the pillow book includes lots of lists and snippets and other materials that you wouldn't necessarily describe as a diary. Uh, Murasaki's diary is more like a series of memoirs or sketches of court life. It mostly covers the years of 1008 to 1010, including the birth of the Empress's children. In addition to the documentation of notable events at court, Murasaki's diary includes analysis of court life, personal reflections, and references to Buddhist rituals. Just as the emperor's wives were arranged into a hierarchy, so were all those wives ladies-in-waiting. Throughout the whole culture, as we said earlier, there was just so much focus on rank. Murasaki wrote about all this in her diary, including documenting disputes among the other ladies and her feeling that she was treated poorly by some of the other court women because of their jealousy over her literary success. The date of Murasaki's death is not entirely clear. The last mentions of her in writing are dated from 1013 or 1015. By that point, Emperor Ichijo had died and Murasaki had moved from one residence to another with the empress and the rest of her court. Murasaki's brother died in 1014, and her father died in 1029. Sources put her death anywhere between 1014 and 1025. Her daughter died in 1080. We will get to the tale of Genji after a quick sponsor break. Although the tale of Genji is a work of fiction... It's also regarded as a look at what life was like for the aristocracy and the imperial court in Heian, Japan. At least a very fictionalized, highly romanticized look. It's a long romance with 54 chapters that span about 75 years, featuring at least 400 characters and running for more than 1,000 pages when translated into English. It's an early precursor to George R.R. R. Martin. <laughs> yes, I had that thought a couple of times. There's not as much murdering, <laughs> but it is very long and uh, and convoluted. Because it's a long work of narrative prose presenting realistic characters in a fictional story, and it's likely the oldest work that we know about that fits that description, it is often called the world's first novel, although that designation is not universally agreed upon. Sometimes it is also described as the first historical novel because it seems to depict a time between 75 and 100 years before it was written, and it treats that earlier era with some degree of nostalgia. If you care about spoilers in a thousand-plus-year-old piece of fiction, we're about to give a brief overview of what this book is about, along with various ways that it reflected or depicted high-end court culture, And just to be really clear, like most of the literature and art that came out of the imperial court, this was focused on court culture, meaning that it was about Japan's richest and most powerful people, not the ordinary Japanese population. Like, it was not about the Japanese 1%. It was like the Japanese hundredth of 1%. Yeah. 
And as its name suggests, the book tells the story of a man called Genji. And his mother is one of the emperor's intimates, so she is in a lower tier in the emperor's hierarchy of wives. The emperor is quite fond of her, but that affection just is not enough to change her place in the order of things. And she also dies when Genji is very young. Genji is just so beautiful and intelligent. In translations, he's also called Shining Genji or the Shining Prince. His father, the emperor, wants to make him heir to the throne, but as had been the case with Genji's mother, the emperor's wishes alone are just not enough to do that. Genji is not nearly high enough in rank for the rest of the court to accept him as the heir apparent. So the emperor does what he can to set Genji up for a life of wealth and privilege, but one that is outside of the imperial family. He gives Genji the surname Minamoto, making him a commoner, although he was still a commoner of very high rank and able to hold high-level offices. Genji grows up to be handsome, adventurous, and very sensitive, and much of the book is about his love life. Some of the women involved are Genji's wives. The first woman that he marries is the Minister of the Left's daughter. The Minister of the Left was one of the highest-ranking imperial counselors. Another wife is known as the Third Princess, who Genji marries when he's 40. That happens after her father, who's a retired emperor and thus Genji's half-brother, decides to become a monk and asks Genji to take care of her. In between those years, there is the character Murasaki, who Genji first sees when she is only 10 and living with her grandmother. She reminds him of his late mother, and after her grandmother dies, he takes custody of her, basically by kidnapping her while her family is distracted, and then he grooms her to be his wife. Although she is too low in rank for Genji to name for his primary wife, of all the women in his life, she is the one that he seems to feel the most deeply for, and her death devastates him. Genji also has a lot of affairs, something that wasn't necessarily frowned upon in Heian, Japan. Polygamy was expected for men, and people also took lovers outside of those marriages. So a man could have multiple wives, but a woman couldn't have multiple husbands, although she could take lovers if she chose. As long as the husband acknowledged the children that his wife gave birth to, those children were considered to be legitimate. However, although all of this was pretty much expected, it did not at all translate into a lack of possessiveness or jealousy. Jealousy and envy are very present themes in the tale of Genji. Just a couple of highlights of Genji's affairs. He fathers a secret baby with the emperor's wife, Fujitsubo, who is another woman in this story who is said to resemble Genji's late mother. That baby goes on to become emperor. At one point, Genji goes into exile after being caught in an affair with the daughter of a political rival, and he pursues other affairs while he is exiled. Since the tale of Genji was a reflection of the court culture of the time, all of these affairs can make it seem like the Heian court was just a total hotbed of steamy licentiousness. But really, these relationships were carried out with just an incredible amount of discretion. In the imperial court, women were housed separately from the men, including with married couples. Wives had their own homes, and their husbands and lovers came to visit them. And there were a lot of barriers, both physical and cultural, between potential partners. Women's attire also involved layers and layers of clothing. The number could vary, but an ideal number of layers was 12. 
A typical outfit included, at minimum, trouser skirts, an unlined dress, lined robes, a gown, a mantle, a train, and a jacket. So total nudity was not common, even in explicit artwork or literature. These clothes and their materials, patterns, and colors are a big part of the tale of Genji. Curtains and screens also physically separated women from their male visitors. And to move these curtains or screens aside to see a woman was essentially a promise of commitment. The idea of just glimpsing someone through a gap in the screen is another big theme in the tale of Genji and in classical Japanese literature in general. And even though Genji's physical relationships are a huge part of the book, actual physical encounters are hardly ever mentioned. In some cases, they're barely hinted at or alluded to, and a lot of this intimacy just happens in between the lines. Although emotional sensitivity was a hallmark of Heian court culture, people also did not talk about their feelings to each other directly. Poetry was the most acceptable way for people to communicate their most personal thoughts. But they were poems, so they tended to be veiled rather than direct, and even these poems had to be delivered by a go-between rather than straight from the writer to the recipient. The Tale of Genji contains nearly 800 poems. To add to all this, there was virtually no privacy in the Heian court. High-ranking women were always surrounded by ladies-in-waiting, servants and staff, who all naturally knew everybody's business. But it only really mattered if you were caught by someone else of rank doing something that was questionable. We should also note that all of the women that Genji pursues in the book are fully realized characters of their own, with the novel exploring their feelings and motivations and internal psychological lives. Some critics argue that the work is really their story as much as it is Genji's, and that if it wasn't the first novel, period, it would at least be the first psychological novel. So to get back to the plot of the book, Genji rises through the ranks, becoming wealthier and more prominent. Eventually, he has multiple households. After his secret son, the emperor, learns his true parentage, he names Genji the honorary retired emperor, which is essentially the highest honor that Genji could ever hope to attain as a commoner. But in his last years, after the character Murasaki's death, a grief-stricken Genji becomes really lonely and wistful and ultimately decides to take religious vows and live his last years in seclusion. But the book does not end with Genji's death. It continues on with a mostly new cast of characters. Its last third tells the story of Keoru, who is presented as Genji's son, but is really his best friend's grandson, plus Keoru's friend Nyou, who is Genji's grandson. Like Genji, they have a series of relationships, affairs, and seductions, some of which can have a similarly soapy tone to modern Western audiences. For example, there is a whole love triangle that also involves an apparent death, a case of amnesia, an exorcism, woohoo, and the decision to become a nun. The book also ends on an ambiguous note, which doesn't resolve a lot of these earlier threads. So that very brief overview seems pretty straightforward, but the novel itself really isn't. It contains a lot of little snippets, some of which seem like abandoned threads of the story, along with shifts in the point of view, characters' interior monologues, authorial asides, and those nearly 800 poems that we mentioned earlier. It can be challenging to read and absorb any work that was written in another language as a reflection of another culture, and even for Japanese speakers, the tale of Genji is typically translated from Heian Japanese to modern Japanese. 
But the tale of Genji has some traits that make it particularly challenging for modern readers and translators especially. For one thing, it contains a lot of references and allusions to historical people and events from Heian Japan, including many, many references to the literature of the time. So there is a lot of nuance that a well-read person in 11th century Japan would easily grasp, but is just about invisible if you are a Westerner whose only experience with Heian literature is the tale of Genji and and maybe, say, Shonagon's pillow book. Yeah, those are the two things that I think get read the most often among English speakers. And on top of that, we talked about how relationships in the court of Heian Japan were carried out with layers and layers of discretion. The book itself is also written that way. Heian Japanese as a language didn't always clearly connect things like subjects and objects. Often these kinds of linguistic relationships were denoted through very subtle shifts in verb conjugation. To add to that, most of the characters in the book are not directly named. They are mentioned by title or rank. In some cases, there are duplicates among these titles, or characters' titles change over time. People who were part of the Heian court who were immersed in a culture that was threaded through with all of these hierarchies and ranks probably would have been able to tell who was who without a lot of difficulty. But translations of the work often end up deriving various nicknames for the characters to make things more intelligible to readers who don't have that background. All of this adds up to a work that a lot of critics think was meant to be read and reread over and over because it's only after rereading it that a reader could possibly pick up on all of those allusions and subtexts and connections involved. We'll talk about the ongoing influence of this book after we first pause for a sponsor break. As we said earlier, it's not entirely clear when Murasaki Shikibu wrote Genji Monogatari. It's not even clear what order she wrote the chapters in or whether those chapters were originally read in the same order that they are today. One chronicle written in the 14th century suggests that Murasaki went on a pilgrimage to a temple not far from Kyoto after a princess asked the empress for a new story. The empress commissioned one from Murasaki. And then while she was at this temple, Murasaki had a vision of an older Genji in exile, and that prompted her to write chapters 11 and 12 first. It's not really clear, though, how much truth there is to this story. There has also been some debate about whether Murasaki was the sole author of the entire work, with some people speculating that some chapters, in particular those last ones after Genji's death, may have been written by her daughter. And there's really no clear evidence of this one way or the other, but there is some suggestion that Murasaki may have had an editor who helped shape a sprawling, very complex work into its final form. Yeah, the whole authorship debate is like mostly people reading it incredibly closely, trying to pick up clues as to whether her daughter may have picked up part of it. Within decades of Murasaki Shikibu writing The Tale of Genji, though, people in Japan were recognizing it as a classic. Fujiwara no Shunzi, who was an influential poet and critic in the late 12th century, called Genji Monogatari indispensable, especially for people who wanted to study poetry. The earliest surviving version we have of the tale of Genji is an incomplete set of illustrations from about the same time. At court, empresses didn't typically read work to themselves. It was read aloud to them, with the empress following along with illustrations on a scroll. The remaining fragments of this 12th century scroll are considered a Japanese national treasure and are housed in two different museums in Japan. 
Although movable type was being developed in China around the time that Murasaki Shikibu lived, it didn't become widely used or spread to Japan until later. So the tale of Genji was mainly copied by hand for the first centuries of its existence. That meant that by the 13th century or so, there were lots of copies floating around with all kinds of variations starting to crop up. People started making an effort to identify and preserve the original text. One of these was Minamoto no Mitsuyuki, who worked with his son Chikayuki, with Chikayuki probably finishing their work after his father's death. Mitsuyuki was the governor of Kawachi, so their version is known as the Kawachi text. Poet and calligrapher Fujiwara no Taika was doing similar work at about the same time. He compiled the Ayobyoshi Bon, or the blue cover text version of the book. Until 2019, there were believed to be four surviving chapters of this version that he wrote in his own hand. And we talked about the newly discovered fifth chapter in our year-end Unearthed in 2019. There's also one other set of early copies of the Tale of Genji that's grouped together basically as other texts. But Fujiwara no Taika's compilation was regarded as standard by the 14th century. And today, most translations from Heian Japanese use his version as a starting point. The Tale of Genji continued to be read in Japan in the centuries after it was written, growing more popular during the Muromachi period from about 1338 to 1573, and then during the Edo period from about 1603 to 1868. In addition to adaptations of the work into other media, Murasaki Shikibu became a character in various works of fiction during these periods. Several satirical versions of the tale of Genji were written during the Edo period as well. We talk about the Edo period and its culture more in our previous episode on Katsushika Hokusai, which we're also going to put out as a Saturday classic soon. By the early 20th century, the tale of Genji was still regarded as a classic work of Japanese literature, but it wasn't necessarily beloved by Japanese readers. The 1,000-year-old Japanese it was written in was just too inscrutable for most people to read and enjoy. Then, poet Yosano Akiko published a four-volume translation into modern Japanese in 1912 and 1913. Her translation made the work far more accessible to Japanese readers. It was well-reviewed, and it sold well in spite of what was regarded as a pretty expensive price tag. Many other translations into modern Japanese have followed. The first translations of the tale of Genji into English were created at the end of the 19th century. The first translation of the entire work was by Arthur Whaley, who published a six-volume work, volume by volume, in the 1920s and 30s. Whaley's work was generally regarded as a huge achievement in the English-speaking literary world, although it did have some shortcomings. There is some degree of subjectivity in translating any work, but Whaley in particular seemed more focused on trying to preserve what he saw as the beauty of Murasaki's language rather than the accuracy of the story as she wrote it. He basically left out parts that he thought were uninteresting or obscure, and sometimes he wrote passages that he thought sounded as beautiful as the original, whether or not they conveyed sort of the same meaning as the original. He also simultaneously tried to make all the dialogue sound like things that English speakers would actually say in conversation, rather than reflecting the flavor of Murasaki's prose dialogue or the many layers of discretion that were part of Heian court culture. 
Even so, his translation made the book accessible to the world of Western literature. Before he had even finished it, when he still had two volumes left to go, The Tale of Genji was being called one of the masterpieces of world literature, with people comparing it to everything from the Iliad and the Odyssey to the works of Shakespeare, Flaubert, and Tolstoy. Whaley's translation, rather than the original Heian Japanese, also became the starting point for other translations into other languages, meaning that Whaley's editorial decisions influenced how the tale of Genji was translated into other languages as well. Other English-language translations since then have tried to, in one way or another, improve on or correct Whaley's work. Later English translations are by Edward Seidensticker in 1976, Royal Tyler in 2001, and Dennis Washburn in 2015. Helen McCullough also translated a selection of earlier chapters in 1994, and these translations are all very different from one another. Yeah, you can read whole papers that are devoted to looking at the same passage from Heian Japanese and how each of these people translated it and what the subtle differences or dramatic differences in all of those translations are. Some of these differences just come with the territory of translating any work into another language, especially when that work is so different in terms of both time and place. But translating the tale of Genji can be particularly challenging. It's a book that involves a lot of romantic entanglements and seductions and other deeply personal human encounters written during and about a time and place that had a very different set of mores and expectations for behavior than most people are living under today. And on top of that, as we touched on earlier, it was written in a language and style that obfuscated a lot of the details about all these things. So apart from how they've handled things like the sound of the language, different translators have come away with very different interpretations of characters' actions and reactions and feelings. On top of that, when it comes to translations into English, the major translations we have today have all been by people who were from the United States or the United Kingdom. So in addition to all those other challenges, these translators have also had to contend with the cultural baggage that comes from centuries of Western fascination for and objectification of Asian nations and cultures. In addition to its reputation as a masterpiece in world literature, The Tale of Genji was part of the earliest evolution of Japanese literature in Japanese. And that evolution was largely the work of women. As we said earlier on the show, when Murasaki Shikibu was living, Chinese was the official language of the Japanese imperial court, and so-called serious literature was being written and read in Chinese— Women, on the other hand, were writing in Japanese, using a style of cursive writing called hiragana, which was so associated with women that it was nicknamed the women's hand. So in a lot of ways, Heian court women lay the groundwork for later Japanese literature. And that brings up another point about the tale of Genji's translations. Murasaki Shikibu was a woman, writing a work that was being read or read aloud mostly for an audience of women. The translator that finished the first translation into modern Japanese was also a woman. But as far as English translations, when it comes to translations of the entire work, all the English language versions are by men. If you remember that one woman that we mentioned, she only translated a portion of it. And that's not to say that men are not capable of translating work by women, but for a work that has so much focus on women's inner lives and feelings, it would be really interesting to have a woman's take on the whole thing in English. Yeah, I personally, like my fantasy wish list, if I could just snap my fingers and have some kind of piece of literature at my immediate disposal, it would be a translation of The Tale of Genji into modern English by a Japanese woman. I think that would be amazing. Yeah. 
I'm sure it will happen at some point. At some point, sure, yeah. So apart from all of these translations, there have also been so many adaptations of the tale of Genji into every conceivable medium, including movies, radio plays, TV serials, manga, woodblock prints, and kabuki plays. In 2008, it even appeared as a Google Doodle in Japan for the 1,000th anniversary of the text. And that is the now at this point six-year delayed episode. <laughs> Uh, do you have listener mail that is not six years delayed? I do. I do. Uh, it's not delayed at all. Um, we're recording this on December 23rd, and this came December 20th. Seems very timely to me. Uh, it is from Erica, uh, and Erica wrote about the Italian hall disaster and says, Hello, I was shocked and excited to see that you were doing an Italian hall episode. I'm from Dollar Bay, Michigan, a couple of miles south of Calumet. I've been a history nerd my whole life, and local history is a huge part of that. When I took part in the local history smackdown, we named our team the Big Annies. There are some points that are well-known around the area. The one-man drill is referred to as the Widowmaker because of the fear of being alone in that environment. The Keweenaw Brewing Company has a dark beer called the Widowmaker Black Ale. It's delicious, though if you don't like dark beers, it's probably not for you. You briefly mentioned the Quincy Mine. That site is a National Historic Landmark District, and the Quincy Mine Hoist Association runs tours from April to late fall, usually with themed Halloween tours. Check out their Instagram for fun pictures. I worked here in high school and college. I love it so much I convinced my now husband that we should get married there. The Quincy Number no. 2 Shaft House is an iconic piece of the landscape. Nordberg Steam Hoist is the largest steam-powered hoist engine. I've attached some of our wedding photos for context. Thanks for all you do in bringing stories like this to a wider audience. Erica, thank you so much, Erica, for this awesome uh, this awesome email and for sending the pictures. Um, I had found the Widowmaker nickname in the research, and it just did not make it into the episode for whatever reason. Uh, but if I'm ever in the area, I will super try that, uh, that dark beer, because I do love a very dark beer. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast... We're at History Podcast at iHeartRadio.com. We're also all over social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Pinterest, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and anywhere else you get podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 